Let us pray. Our Father above, our God and Savior, our Creator and Redeemer, our Ruler and Sustainer, we give you thanks and praise. We love you and adore you. We rejoice and delight in you. We magnify and exalt your name. You give us every good gift. You supply our needs and grant us peace. Give us grace today, the grace of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Word made flesh, crucified and now raised for us to cover our sins and bring us into new life. Give us grace today, the grace of your Holy Spirit poured out by you through your Son, the Holy Spirit who pours your love into our hearts and gives us gifts for service in the kingdom. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one true God in three eternal persons existing in a communion of love indwelling one another. O great triune God, show us your glory and be glorified in us. This we pray. Amen. I will now read what is known as Mark's longer ending. uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Here again, the gospel of Christ. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared to in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do give you thanks for your word. We thank you for this word, a word of victory, a message of hope, a word that we can base our lives upon, a word about the risen Christ. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Christ Jesus, for our whole salvation is found in the risen Christ. All our hopes are set upon the risen Christ. He shows us what future has been guaranteed for us. He shows us your purposes, purposes of love and redemption and restoration. May we see those purposes at work today. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Figuring out the end of Mark's gospel is a difficult question. That's why we started to look at this a couple weeks ago on Easter Sunday. Uh, The oldest versions of Mark's gospel end at verse 8 of chapter 16. Many in the early church were only familiar with this short ending, this shorter version of Mark. 
If Mark does end at verse 8 of chapter 16, it seems to be a rather abrupt and incomplete ending. And yet, as we saw on Easter Sunday, there's also something subtle and clever about it. If Mark originally ended his gospel with verse 8, then it's an unfinished story. And as an unfinished story, it thrusts itself on the reader. It draws the reader in. It draws the reader in so the reader will go out and complete the story. It draws the reader into the mission Mark's gospel is launching. And so because the story is unfinished, the reader knows he must write his own ending to the story by telling others the story of Christ's resurrection. The reader fills in the missing piece, as it were. One interesting argument in favor of the short ending as original is the way the four Gospels link together. I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it here again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written in that order, and it seems that there's, a, there's something to that sequence. Each Gospel picks up in some way where the previous one left off. So Matthew's Gospel ends with Jesus saying, Go! Mark's gospel begins with Jesus on the go. He shows us a Jesus who is constantly on the move. He's immediately going here and then straight away going there. He's showing us the way to go. This is what it will look like to go to follow Matthew's command. It's there in Mark. Or another example of this, how they link together. Luke ends his gospel with basically a Bible study that Jesus leads on the road to Emmaus. Jesus is teaching how he fulfills the law and the prophets. And people say, oh, I wish I could have been there for that Bible study. Well, guess what? John's gospel is that Bible study. John's gospel was written to show all the manifold ways, all the diverse ways in which Jesus has fulfilled all that has gone before. What did Jesus do on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24? He led them through teaching that looks a lot like John's gospel because John's gospel shows us Jesus as the fulfillment of everything. What about Mark and Luke? What about that link in the chain? Mark's short ending feeds really nicely into Luke's gospel, especially Luke's opening. Mark, with a short ending, ends with three women who are afraid. Luke opens up with three angels saying, do not be afraid. Mark's short ending ends with three women who have been struck silent. Luke opens his gospel with three joyful songs of praise. The short ending of Mark's gospel is the perfect segue into Luke's gospel. Uh, It makes me even wonder if Luke knew Mark in the shorter version and composed his gospel knowing it would be next in the canon, slotted right next to to Mark, picking up where Mark left off. But there are also versions of Mark's gospel that have come down to us with a longer ending. Your Bible certainly makes a note of this. It may have these verses in brackets, or it may have a footnote or a marginal note in some way that tells you this. Uh, This longer ending is not found in all the manuscripts, but it is common, common enough that it gets printed in our Bibles. This longer ending runs from verse 9 to verse 20. And people have speculated, where did this longer ending come from? Why do we have Mark's gospel in these two versions? Well, my guess is that some years after Mark released his gospel, after the first publication of his gospel, Mark came back and added these verses as an epilogue. This is not all that unusual. Other books that are in the canonical scriptures went through development or had things added, particularly at the end. Uh, Say, for example, Deuteronomy 
ends and then it's got Moses' death added on, which Moses probably didn't write. was probably added by another inspired author. So you had Deuteronomy in the first version without that, and then later that was added for a second edition of Deuteronomy, as it were. And it seems that Mark's gospel might have gone through a similar development. Mark published it ending at verse 8 and later came back and added this epilogue as a kind of appendix. Or perhaps another inspired writer added it for Mark. So you could think of this longer ending as Mark 2.0, Mark's second edition. And just because it was added later does not mean it was added in a haphazard fashion. It actually forms a very fitting conclusion to the gospel. It not only answers the questions that the shorter ending left open-ended, it also ties up all kinds of other loose threads from the gospel as a whole. The church has accepted Mark's longer ending as part of the canon of Scripture. It should be regarded as inspired and authoritative Scripture, indeed as the very Word of God. It should be preached and taught as such in the church. One of the strongest arguments in favor of seeing the longer ending as authentic, even if not original, seeing it as authentic, is the way this longer ending matches the beginning of Mark's gospel. In other words, the same genius who wrote Mark 1.1 through 16.8, that same genius is seen in these final chapters, Mark, these final verses, Mark 16.9 through 20. You can see the same artistry, the same hand at work. Indeed, several key themes and terms that show up in Mark chapter 1 reappear in these final added verses in Mark 16 which again suggests even if they weren't there originally, they are there now by design. They fit. Think about this. Think about the connection between the opening chapter of Mark and these final verses of chapter 16, 9 through 20. Mark chapter 1 opens by declaring Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Those are royal titles. Christ, Son of God, means he's king. And so how does Mark 16 end? It ends with Jesus enthroned as king at the right hand of God. What was foreshadowed in Mark 1 is now fulfilled in this longer ending Mark has given us. In chapter 1, Jesus is baptized and then he squares off with Satan in the wilderness. He engages in spiritual combat as he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. In chapter 16, Jesus commands his disciples to baptize and then tells them they will drive out demons. Mark begins and ends with holy war. It's the baptized versus the demonic. These things are linked at Mark's beginning and in Mark's ending. In chapter 1, Jesus gathers disciples to himself to share in his mission to Israel. In chapter 16, Jesus regathers his disciples to himself to send them out on his mission now to the nations. In chapter 1, Jesus performs an exorcism and heals a woman. In chapter 16, we meet a woman who has been exorcised and there is the promise of healings. The connections between the beginning and end of Mark are numerous and obvious. The very beginning of Mark's gospel and the long ending of Mark's gospel match. And so today we want to begin looking at verses 9 through 20. Why did Mark add these verses? Or why did the Holy Spirit add these verses to Mark? What do they tell us that we didn't already know? What do they add to the story? How do they supplement what we've already learned? 
What do they teach us about the risen Christ, about the mission of the church, and about the future of the world? How do these verses shape the life of the church? How does this postscript to Mark fill out his presentation of the gospel? We'll start looking at this here this morning, and we will continue it next week. Uh, In verse 9, Mark writes this. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, those words are absolutely Stunning. It's as if here Mark is giving us this supplementary account, this additional account, and he starts all over taking us back to the very beginning of Easter morning. Verse 9 says, he rose early on the first day of the week. It's such a simple statement. It's so basic. It's such an understated way of describing the most incredible event that has happened in the history of the universe. Early on the first day morning, on the first early in the morning on the first day of the week when he arose. So simple, so understated. Early in the morning, first day of the week. These words point to the newness of it. Something new happening early in the morning, first day of the week. Jesus' resurrection marks a new beginning. Not just in his life, but in the life of the cosmos, not just in his personal history, but in the history of the world. And indeed, in those words, early in the morning, first day of the week, when he arose, those words really contain and summarize the whole Christian faith. Really, the resurrection sums up what the whole Christian faith is all about. The resurrection really sums up what the whole Christian worldview is all about. God makes all things new. God makes the dead come to life. God's love triumphs in the end. God rights every wrong. God's justice overcomes injustice. God reclaims and redeems and restores His creation. All of that is bound up in those simple phrases in Mark 16.9. And I'll tell you, this is the truth we need. It is the truth and the message that our world so desperately needs. We live in a world that is so full of death and darkness and despair. This story is the answer. We need a story that will give us life and peace and joy. A story that will give us love and light. That's what the resurrection story is all about. In our culture's secular worldview, our culture's grand overarching story, or what could be called our culture's meta-narrative, is really a story of death. Tennyson said, nature is red in tooth and claw. And that's really the story of the world according to the secular worldview that's out there that's so common. It's an evolutionary story. A story that leaves God out of the picture more or less. The evolutionary story is all about death. Death is the engine that drives evolution. In our culture's story, death is stronger than life. In our culture's story, death is stronger than love. In our culture's story, death wins. Death gets the last word. That story, the culture's story, ends with a funeral. It ends with the tombs not empty, but the tombs filled. It ends with the bodies piling up. There is no early morning on the first day of the week in the culture story. 
The culture story ends not with daybreak, but with darkness. It ends not with the first day of the week, but with the last day. It ends with a cosmic funeral, not a cosmic resurrection. The story ends, it comes to a crashing end because it ends in death. And this story that our culture so widely believes, this is why our culture has lost hope. This is why people have lost purpose and meaning in their lives. It's why they've lost drive. People in our culture see themselves as living in a tragedy. They see life as tragic. The universe is tragic. The universe is, at best, a doomed love story. You know, like Romeo and Juliet, the ultimate doomed love story. No matter how hard you try to love, death swallows up love in victory. No matter how hard you try to find meaning and purpose and significance, all those things are swallowed up by death in the end. Death wins. And because death wins, that drives cynicism and despair and pessimism. Life is tragic. Life is viewed as a tragedy. All there is to look forward to is misery ever after, darkness ever after. That's the story our culture tells. That's the story in different forms, different versions, much of the world has believed for almost all of human history. In the midst of all of that, Scripture dares to tell a different story. Mark dares to tell a different story. See, as Christians, we can look at the story that the world is telling and we know better. We know we have a better story to tell. A story that's a comedy. Yes, it is a comedy. It is a comic story. And because it is a comedy, it ends with joy and peace and laughter and comfort. It ends with a wedding feast. It ends with a great festival. It ends with a happily ever after. It ends with life instead of death. In fact, it's a story that doesn't end at all because the life this story gives, the life this story promises is everlasting. A story that ends with a resurrection never really ends. That kind of story just goes on and on forever. And so maybe that's why Mark felt free to add more to the story. He finished the story and then he added more because he realized more is always being added to this story. The Gospel is a story that goes on forever and ever and ever. It never ends. The resurrection is not the end of the story. It's a new beginning. The resurrection starts a party that will never end. The resurrection begins a new chapter in the story that will go on forever. See, this is so important. How, how do we narrate our own lives? How do we see the story of our own lives unfolding? Your story and my story are now contained in the story of the risen Christ. We've been baptized into Christ Jesus, so His story is now ours. Indeed, the story of the world is now contained in the risen Christ. And so we know where it's all headed. We know how this story is going to go. We know the plot line. We know the trajectory. Where is it all headed? It's not headed to death. It's not headed to filling all the tombs to the bodies piling up. No, it is headed to life, life everlasting. It is headed to joy and to glory that lasts forever. Christ's story never ends. And so our story won't either. 
This is the story. This simple story is the story our culture so desperately needs. It's the story we so desperately need. This is a story to live by. This is the only story, the story Mark tells here, this is the only story that can pierce the darkness of the world with a beam of light. A light that will ultimately overcome the darkness. It's the one story that can take away the fear of death. See, if death wins in the end, then nothing matters. All significance, all meaning, all purpose are taken away. It's either Christ or chaos. It's either Easter or meaninglessness. It's either Easter or nihilism. It's either Easter or absurdism. Only if this story is true can there possibly be purpose and meaning and significance. See, this story replaces our culture's story. Our culture's story says they died and it was misery ever after. The Easter story says, no, they died and rose again and lived happily ever after. Jesus' resurrection is the clue to the destiny of the whole cosmos. It shows us where everything is headed to resurrection. J.R.R. Tolkien Uh, famously described the gospel as myth made fact. He said the gospel means all the fairy tales are going to come true after all. In fact, it means the fairy stories, you know, that we grow up loving as kids, those fairy stories are really just echoes of the true story that God is telling, the true story God is writing. Tolkien said this of Easter. He said there's no tale ever told that men would rather find true. This is a story that when you tell it, it rings true. Even people have a hard time believing it, wish it were true. They want to find it true. Because if this story is true, it means there is hope. Chesterton said the the fairy stories are important, not because they show us dragons exist. Everybody already knows that, right? We know there's evil in the world. But because they show us dragons can be beaten. The fairy stories are important not because they show us there are dragons out there, but because they show us there is a St. George who is coming to slay the dragon. That's what the gospel is. Jesus is our St. George who has slain the dragon of death. The gospel gives us a story, a story to live by, a story to shape our culture by. It gives us a story that is uniquely hopeful, uniquely comforting, and yes, uniquely credible. The gospel story calls on us to renounce all tragic views of life. To renounce them. To renounce all cynicism and despair and defeatism. Now that Jesus is risen from the dead, there's no way to be cynical anymore. There's no way you can despair. There's no way you can simply be a pessimist and say that's all. No, this Simple line in Mark 16.9 says it all. He rose early in the morning on the first day of the week. That is the key to everything. That's the pivot point. That's the hinge on which everything turns. Now verse 9 goes on to give us more. Verse 9 says he appeared to Mary Magdalene. He wasn't found by her. He appeared to her. 
He's the one in charge. He's showing himself. He's revealing himself. And Mark, interestingly, chooses this point to tell us that Jesus had delivered her from seven demons. That hasn't been mentioned up to this point. It's mentioned now. Why is that detail, obviously highly significant, tucked into the story at just this point? In the very same moment that Mark is telling us that Jesus rose from the dead early in the morning on the first day of the week, he also tells us that he met Mary Magdalene. Oh yeah, the one that he delivered from seven demons. Why is that here? Why is that detail brought in at this point? Well, you know, it's interesting. John's Gospel also records this meeting between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And perhaps it's more obvious there because John in John chapter 20 gives a much fuller account. But think about what what John tells us there in John 20. He's a man. She's a woman. They're in a garden. The tomb was in a garden. She mistakes him for the gardener. All those details are in John 20. Symbolically, what do we have? He's the new Adam. She's the new Eve. It's the groom and his bride. Not literally. It doesn't mean they literally married. But she represents the church. She represents the bride of Christ. And so with that, we can now begin to connect the dots. He's a new Adam figure. The gardener who will take dominion over the whole world and cultivate it, who will build the kingdom of God. He's the new Adam. And she represents the new Eve. His bride, his helper, she represents the church. But then go back to the first Adam and his bride. What did the first Adam do? Go all the way back to Genesis 3. Adam stood by and watched as his bride was attacked by the serpent in the center of the garden. Instead of guarding the garden and guarding his bride, he let Satan attack her. And Satan captured his bride. Satan led Eve into sin. Satan said to Eve, essentially, take and eat. And she did so. And she was captured by Satan. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is the new Adam. He has done what the first Adam should have done. What has he done? He has rescued his bride from Satan. He has crushed the serpent's head. He has exercised his bride. He's cleansed his bride and made her new. And he will feed her. He will feed her and say, he will say to her, take and eat. And she will. He will protect her and provide for her. Adam delivered his bride to Satan. Jesus delivers his bride from Satan. Adam didn't deliver his bride from Satan. He did not defeat Satan. He did not guard his bride from Satan. But Jesus has. Adam didn't feed his bride. He let Satan say to her, take and eat. But not so with Jesus. He will be the one who feeds his bride, who says to her, take and eat. Jesus has exercised Mary Magdalene. He has rescued her. What does it mean? It means Jesus has rescued his people from Satan. Satan is defeated. Sure, he can still tempt us. He's still at work in various ways in the world, and we have to be on our guard against him. But Jesus is ultimately the one who guards us. Satan can tempt us, but he cannot have us. Jesus has exercised his people once and for all. 
Satan can never have his way with you. Jesus has decapitated the serpent. He has crushed the serpent's head under his feet. He has set us free from bondage to Satan. What the New Testament elsewhere calls the principalities and powers, those demonic idols that dehumanize people and corrupt cultures that hold people in bondage and darkness. The principalities and powers have been defeated by Jesus. They have been defeated in principle through His cross and resurrection. We may not see all the implications of Christ's victory over the principalities and powers just yet. It takes time. It takes generations. It takes millennia for Christ's victory to be worked out in full. But the victory has been won. And we are called to live in the light of that victory, to know that Satan is a defeated foe. Once we were possessed by Satan, now we have been exorcised. The church is Mary Magdalene, the demon-possessed harlot who has become the spotless bride. That's our story. We've been set free from bondage to Satan and united to the risen Christ as our husband who will care for us, who will protect us, who will provide for us. We now take and eat from His hands rather than from Satan's. He's the one who guards us. He's the one who has defeated our enemies. He has freed us from slavery to Satan and He has set us free to serve Him as our true Lord. And immediately as Mary meets the risen Christ, this is what she begins to do. She's met with Him, so what does she begin to do? Verse 10, she goes and tells the others who had been with Him, that is, His disciples... But we find his disciples are mourning and weeping. Likely they were mourning and weeping, I'd say over their own failures, but also over Christ's death. They haven't had that that pivot, that hinge turn for them just yet. Verse 11 tells us they did not believe when they first heard Mary's testimony. That's why they're still in sorrow and darkness. They're still living by the wrong story. They're living by a story in which death is the end. Mary comes and says, He's risen. They don't believe her. They're still living in a world where death reigns. They haven't let the life and the light of Easter in. And so Jesus uh, will begin to overcome their unbelief. If they won't let the light in, He will force it upon them. He will shine the light of His resurrection life upon them. Verse 12 tells us Jesus appeared to two of them as they walked in the country. Uh, Mark here is giving us very compressed, abbreviated snapshots of accounts that are given in more detail in the other Gospels. I already showed you how He gives us a very compressed account of the encounter with Mary Magdalene that's spelled out more fully in John chapter 20. Well, here He gives us a, a very compressed account of something Luke tells us in greater length in Luke 24. Okay, verses 9 through 11 are a compressed version of John 20 with Mary Magdalene. Verses 12 and 13 are a compressed version of Luke 24, which recounts Jesus walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. But it's the same thing here. You have an appearance of the risen Christ followed by those who see Him testifying to others, but then those others not believing happened with Mary Magdalene. Now it happens with the two disciples who see Jesus. They go and tell the others the message is still not believed. I think this is interesting, and it's one of the things that makes the story all the more credible. The problem with the early Christians is not that they were too gullible and unscientific. 
The problem with the early Christians is that they were way too skeptical. They were way too scientific. They would not accept eyewitness testimony, even from trusted friends. That adds, actually, to the overall credibility of the story. The resurrection was simply too shocking and too surprising and too unexpected for them to take it in. They simply could not bring themselves to believe it. The resurrection of Jesus may be considered an example of uh, what is sometimes called a black swan. They uh, seem Nicholas Taleb has written a book about this called The Black Swan. A black swan is an event that comes as a total surprise, a total shock to everyone, and changes everything. No one saw it coming. It wasn't predicted or projected. But afterwards, everyone could see how it had to happen, how it was inevitable. And it ends up changing everything. Black swans can be good or bad, uh, the, the way that, 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 that Talib describes them. The resurrection is the ultimate good black swan, the ultimate glorious black swan. They use that name because for the longest time people didn't think a black swan existed. And so a black swan was just an example of like a unicorn, something that doesn't exist. Then they found them in Australia, and then it became something that you didn't expect to find, but then you did. And that's how the the resurrection is for the disciples. They didn't expect it. Now it's happened. It's forced itself upon them. They can't help but believe it and tell others. And they realize, too, how inevitable it all was, that it had to happen this way in retrospect. It came as a total surprise to everyone except Jesus himself. It's an event that transformed everything. It created a new normal, a new world, a new world order is established in Christ's resurrection. And that's what the disciples, one by one, are coming to grips with. When the disciples do finally start to reflect on everything, once they've met the risen Christ, they realize that, yes, of course, this had to happen. Plainly, the scriptures had prophesied it and Jesus had predicted it. And so now they realize they have to overhaul their lives completely to live in accord with this stunning new fact, this new development of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave. And then we come really to what may be known as Mark's version of the Great Commission. He's appeared to the one, Mary Magdalene. He's appeared to the two. Now he appears to the eleven. The eleven disciples at the table It's at the table. Isn't that interesting? The risen Christ enjoyed eating and drinking during his earthly ministry. Apparently, the risen Christ continues enjoying eating and drinking. Indeed, I would say he continues eating and drinking to this very day. He shows up at this table. He shows up at what we call the Lord's table every week. This is where you meet the risen Christ in a special way where he has promised to be found to meet with his disciples to give himself to us, where he says, take and eat. Tables in Scripture are not just places for feasting. They're places for fellowship. They're places of communion and covenant. For Jesus to meet with his disciples at the table means he is renewing his covenant with them. It really harkens back to the table they all sat around. They may be sitting around the very same table that they were at that night he was betrayed when they shared a supper together, together, a Passover meal that he transformed into the Lord's Supper. He's now eating and drinking with them at the table in the kingdom, just as he had said. 
at the table Jesus preaches to them. Uh, And it's actually a stinging rebuke. Uh, He rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not accept the prior testimony of those who saw him. But he also gives them their marching orders. He gives them instructions for the future. Verse 15, he tells them to preach the gospel in the whole creation, to preach the gospel to every creature. Some have taken this literally, like St. Francis, who would preach to birds and squirrels, uh, as well as to humans. And maybe that's part of what Jesus means. Certainly the whole creation is in some way within the scope of his redemptive work. Uh, Certainly this is pointing us to the cosmic scope of his redemption. But the focus of our preaching, of course, has to always be people. Some have suggested here that the word for creation here basically stands for the Gentile world. That is the nations that come out of the Tower of Babel when God divided the human race into various linguistic and cultural groups. Those different groups outside of Israel that make up the created world besides Israel. And certainly that understanding, that interpretation would fit well with the sign gift of tongues that Jesus goes on to mention here as well. Tongues and the Babelic nations go together Only whereas in Genesis 11, when God divided the people by giving them different tongues, now that's going to be reversed. The tongues Jesus gives to his people now so they can preach the gospel to every creature. These tongues will bring peace, not division. The curse of Babel will be reversed. The key thing really to see here is that Jesus' resurrection has cosmic implications. Implications for the whole creation. The whole creation is now the theater of Christ's glory. This is a message that must be proclaimed everywhere. The whole creation should be filled with this good news. The whole universe should resound with the declaration of Christ's resurrection. We should preach the gospel to every creature. We should preach the gospel to every person on the planet, to every nation in the world. And I suppose this means if we ever did colonize other worlds in outer space, we'd have to go preach the gospel there too. (laughs) That's what Mark is saying here. Mark's indicating we'd have to take the gospel to other universes if we ever got around to to, to colonizing other planets. Take the gospel to Hoth and Tatooine and Dagobah and wherever, right? Go preach the gospel to every creature. It's cosmic. It's, It's universal. It's for the whole universe. The gospel's got to go everywhere man goes. Now, of course, we've still got a lot of work to do here on planet Earth. uh, And so I think we need to stick with that for now. But this is what Mark is showing us. It's what the words of Jesus indicate. Jesus here is giving his disciples a missionary charter. These are our marching orders to take this gospel to the whole creation. Now next time, next week, we'll come back and look at the rest of Mark's ending, including these various signs that he say will accompany their preaching. And the other things Mark goes on to indicate about Jesus' ascension and so forth. But you've seen enough here, enough of Mark's longer ending, to get a sense of the overall impression it makes. These verses show us the fact of the resurrection and the results of the resurrection. 
What do we see? We see mourning and weeping turn to joy. We see Satan cast out and a bride united to her husband. We see death defeated by life and love. The story of Easter is utterly unique among all the religions and philosophies of the world. The Bible stands out and the Bible stands alone. It stands out from the crowd and it stands alone as an utterly unique message. And one of the ways it's most unique is that it truly tells us a comedy, a cosmic comedy. It teaches us a story of holistic redemption. Without resurrection, life can only be tragic because death is always looming, always threatening, always breaking in on us, always getting the last word. Think of how the shadow of death hangs over everything. Death puts pressure on your every living moment. Death squeezes you every waking moment of your life and sometimes in your dreams or your nightmares as well. Death is always there casting its shadow. This is why we talk about bucket lists. We feel pressure to do certain things before we die, things we want to have happen or experience before we die. We see lists like 10 places you must visit before you die or the 20 restaurants to eat at before you die or the 100 books to read before you die. Death, death, death. Death constantly squeezing us in its vice grip getting tighter and tighter, pressing in on us. The specter of death is why we're so obsessed with trying to stay young. But we know, of course, in the end, we can't outrun old age. The cult of youth doesn't work. Death finally catches up with us all. Or think about when death hits a loved one and we see just how powerless we are in the face of death. Death steals Death divides, death curses, death destroys. If there is no answer to death, life is tragic. It truly is a tale of sound and fury signifying nothing. If death wins, nothing matters. The gospel shows us there is an answer to death. The question of death has an answer. The answer's name is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He has loved us to death and back. Jesus has loved us to hell and back. Jesus has entered into the depths and darkness of death in order to defeat death on our behalf. And early in the morning, on the first day of the week, He strode forth from the tomb into the breaking light of day, showing us that death is conquered. Death is nothing. Death need not be feared anymore. Jesus came forth from the grave in the breaking light of day on the first day of the week, conquering and to conquer. He came to give His disciples His righteousness and His wisdom and His love and His joy and His kindness. He came to give all these things to his church. I mean, they all, the reason they had such a hard time believing this is because they knew he had been dead. He was really dead. I mean, if you've ever been to an open casket funeral and and you've looked into the face of the dead, you know what death looks like. Okay, Jesus was that dead. 
He was deader than a doornail. And they knew that. They knew he had been dead. But now here he is, alive again, walking around, speaking words of peace and joy to us, sitting at the table with us, feasting with us. Yes, he's got scars, and his scars tell the story. They tell the story of his death. But his resurrection tells a new chapter in that story, proving death was not the end. And as they came to embrace this truth, the resurrection story, as they came to share it with others, it gripped and it transformed the whole world. It's the message of Easter that has transformed the world as nothing else. See, the message of Easter gave birth to really the greatest sociological phenomenon in the history of the world, the church. The church has been the greatest engine for social change and transformation in the history of the world. The church rests upon the Easter message. Indeed, this is the story, the Easter story. This is the story that built our civilization. It's the reason for the founding of our greatest institutions. It's the story that created the hospital and the university. It's the story that led to unprecedented civil rights and freedoms. It's the story that has led us to respect and care for God's creation and to use the full potential of God's creation. It's the story that makes us want to cure disease and deal with injustice and oppression. And of course, at the heart of it all is forgiveness and a community, fellowship, Easter is a story that is out of this world, and yet it is the story that built our world, that has transformed our world. And the story of Easter is still rocking and renewing our world today. The story of Easter is still turning tragedies into comedies, misery into joy. It's still bringing life to the dead. Easter means the world ends not with a funeral, but with a wedding. Easter means that forgiveness and fellowship are really what life is all about. Easter means the story doesn't end with bodies piled up to the sky. The story doesn't end with bodies piled up on the stage like a Shakespearean tragedy would end. It means the story of the world will end with the graves empty and with God's people rejoicing. It's a story that ends with peace and love. It's a story that ends without an ending at all. It's a story that goes on forever. That's Jesus' story. That's the Easter story. And that's our story. Let's give God thanks. Father, we do thank you for the resurrection of Christ. We know his resurrection means everything. It's what gives our our lives purpose and direction and hope and significance. It's what means we are forgiven. It means we can have fellowship and friendship. It means good wins out over evil. It means life wins out over death. Love wins out over hatred. May all these resurrection realities, may these results of the resurrection be manifested in our lives even now. May we manifest the risen life of Christ even in our lives this very day. We pray this in his name. Amen.